at me like, really? We're going to be in Exodus today, naturally, since we just finished John chapter 3. Time to be done with that book. Just kidding. We will return to John, Lord willing, um, in a few weeks, in about nine weeks after today, um, because we're going to take a break here in the summer to look at uh, the Ten Commandments. And we're going to take, Lord willing, ten weeks here to examine each of these Ten Commandments. So I invite you to open up your copy of God's Word this morning. It's in Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to camp much of our time. We'll just be reading verses 1 through 3 in a moment here. So while you're looking for that, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. Share a couple things before we read those first three verses. Our Father, we indeed delight in the law of your word. And we are those who, as we say that, and as we've just sung it, recognize that there is also a part of us that says, I really don't delight in that. I don't delight in reading a book and, and hearing what I'm supposed to do with my life, being told everything. There's a part of us, Lord, that part that we pray you are diminishing day by day, that still rises up and, and shakes a fist at what you're doing in our lives. Lord, we pray today that as we look at the Ten Commandments, that we would not do so in a sort of mindset that, that thinks that, oh, this is how I'm going to be made right with God. This is how I'm going to make sure he stays happy with me. Lord, this is a response to the salvation that you've already granted to your people Israel in Exodus 19 before, Exodus 14 at the Red Sea and Passover before that. But it's a reminder to us, Lord, that, that the life that you have us to live comes after you giving us that life. We've talked about in John 3 over and over that being born again, having new life, having eternal life in you. So we pray for your help now. We ask for your spirit, for your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so why are we taking a break from John? Especially after just doing three chapters. That seems like not enough, right? Well, well part of it comes from just my own personal conviction that I want to make sure that throughout the year that we're looking at a wider swath of God's word. Okay? So that we're, we're taking time to say, hey, we're going to look at John, but then we're also going to make sure we come back to Exodus. You started off the year in Ruth, right? We spent a handful of weeks in the book of Psalms, and then we came to John. We're taking another break here just to go through these Ten Commandments, and then we'll return to the Gospel of John again. But I think it's helpful for us to make sure that we are trying to balance out our view of Scripture. But beyond that, there's also kind of an interesting break in the end of John chapter 3 that we just came into contact with a couple weeks ago, if you remember, um, talking about Jesus as being the one who is above all. Right? He who comes from above is above all, the author John tells us. And then in the end of that, in verse 36, he tells us that the wrath of God abides on all who do not obey the Son. So there's a couple things here that I think make for an interesting transition, and some of them will play out a little bit as we go through um, Exodus chapter 20 in the coming weeks. But what we've kind of titled this sermon series as is uh, the Law of Liberty, 10 Words the law of liberty. Okay, so it's an interesting thing. Maybe that word doesn't really uh, come to mind when you think about the Ten Commandments, but it's actually from the Bible. Um, we got that title from James 1.25, if you want to look at that later on. But the reason that we're using that as a title for this series in the Ten Commandments is because this law was indeed given to a group of people 
who had been liberated from slavery. God doesn't intend simply to give them salvation, give salvation to Israel, and then leave them to, their, to themselves, to their own devices and plans. But he intends to continue to be their God, to be their both Savior and their Lord and their Master, the one who is ruling over them. And so it's important for us, before we even read this, to remember the order of events going on in here. When Israel is enslaved in Egypt, and finally Moses comes to be the the instrument of God to bring them out of slavery and bring them into freedom and ultimately into a promised land, it's a reminder to us that God works salvation in our lives first. And then he expresses to us what that life is to look like. So he is in no way, in any point in Scripture, does God ever say, hey, the way this is going to work out is once you get your act together, then I'll show up. And it's very easy for us to fall into that trap of thinking, isn't it? Why do you think that is? Why is it so easy for us to imagine that God is only pleased with me when I'm doing everything right? It's probably because that's how the rest of the world works, right? Probably your job setting, your neighborhood, your family setting sometimes even. We're very quick to fall right into that scheme of the way the world works based on our own merits. And it's all too easy for us to apply that to the Lord as well. I was greatly helped by an Irish theologian who's since gone to be with the Lord. His name's Alec Mateer. Um, Looked at his writings this past few days. And he says this, The grace that saves preceded the law that demands. The grace that saves preceded the law that demands. He goes on to say, Grace and law belong together. For grace leads to law. Saving love leads to and excites grateful love expressed in obedience. That was kind of a long quote, but listen to this part again. Grace and law belong together because grace leads to it. Grace has been expressed to Israel in saving them. Why did God save them? Because he looked at them and said, oh, they don't deserve this slavery. Oh, boy, they need to come out. They're really something special. No. He actually says later on in the prophets that it wasn't because you were great or many or powerful. It was for my own glory. He decided to choose those who were enslaved that he'd made a promise to, of course, right, through Abraham uh, generations before. But he does it by grace. Israel receives something good that they didn't deserve. And that grace then is followed up by law. And, and that law does not, is not meant to come as a way of saying, now look, if you want to keep this, then you better be really, really careful about doing all these kinds of things. Now God does tell them in Exodus chapter 19 that if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. All the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So there is conditions here. There is this this fact that Israel is expected to respond to this law with obedience. But they're not expected to do so in a way of earning something, but to show the reality of what God has indeed done in their lives. Because every time they mess up, what is it that God ultimately is calling them to do? To remember their salvation. To remember they've been saved by grace. And so if we're saved by grace, we need to be kept by it as well. Now, the Ten Commandments in the minds of many people are a way to make God happy with you, right? The world we live in, if you ask somebody on the street, what's the function of the Ten Commandments? If they know them, if they've heard them before, they'd probably give an answer that was similar to that in some way. It's the way I can know that I'm okay with God. 
But Matir reminds us here that saving love, that is the love that drove God to save the people of Israel and Egypt, that saving love leads to and it excites a grateful love, a grateful love in the people who have been saved. And so when the law comes, obedience should be the natural response because we wouldn't even be a people if God hadn't saved us out of Egypt. Should be Israel's stance, right? And interestingly enough, as we gather this morning, we are an expression of that same kind of salvation. Because you wouldn't be sitting in this seat right now if Christ had not come and accomplished salvation so that you could be his. I trust that you all believe that. But it's true of anyone who comes through the doors, whether they know Christ or not. The reason that they're here is because of a salvation that has happened. We want them to receive it, right? We want them to walk in it because this salvation isn't just for everybody and anybody. It's for everyone who believes. Everyone who believes in that salvation that was granted by love through grace. And it's meant to be responded to by grateful love and obedience. Now this idea of 10 words just comes from Deuteronomy 5.22 where in Deuteronomy chapter 5 we do see the 10 commandments repeated again. But here Moses says, These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Now it's interesting, in the end of that verse it says he added no more, and then you go, hold on a second, I know there are a lot more laws than ten, right? What is Moses talking about here? He's talking about a distinction that these ten commandments present to us. They are unique. They were spoken directly from the Lord on the mountain to his people. He spoke them. He wrote them even on those tablets of stone. He spoke them and wrote them at the mountain. God came near to his people. He came into their presence. He came before them to deliver this message. And yet, interestingly enough, what kind of setting, what kind of landscape does he come to? He comes to a mountain. That's not insignificant, right? That mountain clearly shows us something. God, even in his closeness, is still so different than us, right? He was so different and so holy that the people weren't even allowed to go go near the mountain. And they were afraid to. They needed an intercessor. They needed somebody to go on their behalf. So these commandments that the Lord gives to his people, Matir again says, that each commandment represents some aspect of the likeness of God. And because they represent the likeness of God, obedience to God's law gives expression to what we really are. Hold on. I'm not these kinds of things. When I think of the Ten Commandments, I don't always think of something that expresses my character very well. But you need to remember something about creation. Because he did not create humanity just like he created everything else. What is distinct about the creation of humanity in the book of Genesis? We're made in the image of God. And something of that is shown to us in these commandments that God is saying, I'm telling you, you need to do these things and do not do these things because that's how it created you to be. There's a restorative purpose in the commandments. They're not meant for God's people. They are not meant to destroy and tear down and leave condemned. They're meant to restore and bring back into fellowship. But can we be saved by the law? big theological discussion that we need to have about this as well. But this results, Alec Matier says, in our true freedom. What? 
how does the coming of a law bring freedom for us? And this is the great seeming oxymoron of our title for the series, The Law of Liberty. When you think of liberty, you probably don't think of, yes, the, most, the freest I've ever felt was when I was obeying the law, right? When you're driving down the highway and the speed limit is 60 and you're going 60, do you feel like, man, this is freedom, right? Set the cruise control and the little thing is right at 60 and everything's fine. No, our imagination is that freedom really comes when I say, hey, I know the law says 60, but did you know they don't pull you over until you go over 65? (laughs) Some of us live by that, right? Those are the road rules. Also, have you seen everyone else on the highway? Who's driving 60? Just the, the dad in the minivan in the far right lane. That's me most of the time. Because I'm deathly afraid of being pulled over. And it's happened a couple times. I don't like feeling like I got in trouble. Anybody else feel that way? Like, yeah, like, it's, it, the worst thing could be for somebody to say, Nick, you did something wrong. It doesn't even matter what I did. It just, those words would crush me, right? We hate that sense of, of that restriction, either the restriction of the law that comes and says, you must only go this speed and no more. Or the restriction of, if you happen to break this, you will be condemned. We might have even a personality difference in that, right? We might lean one way or another in our greater concern. But the law, see, see we, look at, we look at something like driving down the highway and we say, okay, is this how I really become my truest self by going the speed limit? No, it's very different. These Ten Commandments have a qualitative difference that are not just about making sure that you're safe on the highway, But the ten words are delivered by God to the people of God that they might freely reflect the character of God. So the ten words are delivered by God to the people of God that they might freely reflect the character of God. Freely reflect. In a list of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. We'll deal with the negative fact of that in a moment. But this is the purpose of these Ten Commandments, why God has given them. Now, we know the law also has another purpose. We see this in the book of Galatians. It's important for us to note that the law is, in fact, a mirror, right? It is a mirror to show us something's wrong. When we look into the perfect law of God, we notice, I don't match up to this. Things are not okay. I need need a Savior. I need somebody who can restore the image of God in me, and that is, of course, what Christ does by fulfilling the law. So first and foremost, the law comes and reveals to us our need for Christ, right? Before we know him, the purpose of the law is not to say, hey, do you want to reflect that image of God that you were created to do? Here, obey these Ten Commandments. Well, if we're not redeemed, if we're not made right, the Bible says we're spiritually dead. We can't reflect the image of God. Apart from Christ, apart from knowing him, apart from having that new birth, But you see, Israel has, in a sense, already experienced a new birth, haven't they? Have you ever thought about that? You guys think I just broke in the middle of John 3 for no reason. But, and and I do too, to be honest, but, you know, I come to this and I'm like, wow. Israel did receive a new birth, didn't they? They became a new country. I mean, being enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and then suddenly being brought out miraculously by wonderful signs and wonders, it's like being born again, isn't it? They've been given a new lease on life. Everything is totally different. Let's look at 
the first of these commandments and see how important that context truly is. Look with me as I read verse 1 of chapter 20, and we'll go to verse 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Sounds like we should continue, right? But we're going to stop right there. So this command, this first instruction, this first thing about how we can, again, embrace the law of liberty as a way of freeing ourselves up to live in light of what God has actually created us to be, bear his image. This first command, this first call, you shall have no other gods before me, can be basically boiled down to the idea of no other gods, right? Don't believe in, don't trust, don't worship, don't any of those things, other gods. And it may, in fact, be something that we think, even just as American Christians and one of the biggest umbrellas we can put ourselves under, it's just like, yeah, well, I only go to a Christian church. I mean, I don't pray to other gods. I don't pray to Baal or to Osiris or Ra or any of those other ones from Egypt. I mean, that's just kind of weird anyway. But what this commandment is actually calling us to is far greater than that. Because the call of this commandment is to worship God alone by coming into his presence free of any other allegiance or dependence outside of him. To worship God alone by coming into his presence free of any other allegiance or dependence outside of him. Do you know that if you came into this building to worship God, which, yeah, I know, worship is all of life, right? We're supposed to offer our lives as a a sacrifice of worship. But there's something special that is sort of indicative of our spiritual reality when we come together on Sunday morning. And if you came in through the doors with any other desire except for worshiping God and expressing your perfect allegiance and dependence on him, if you came in with any other mindset, you came to worship wrong. You're already guilty of this commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. If you came in here thinking, I'm really hoping for a short sermon. I know it's only going to be three verses, and so we should be getting out of here because I'm going to be so hungry. And I got that VBS meeting right after, too. But we've got to get lunch. And then after lunch, this is my only chance to mow the lawn, and my neighbor's going to yell at me if I don't get my lawn mowed. Not speaking from experience or anything. (laughs) And then maybe after that, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, if the kids don't get home and get to bed on time for their nap, they're not going to take a nap, and it's going to take forever to get them to... You see how these things pile on? These are the other gods that we have. Because if my dependence is not strictly on him and what he's going to do in my life today as I open up his word, but my dependence might be shown to be elsewhere if I come in with an attitude of, this better be quick, or this better be good, or this better be worth it, or all those questions, right? I know I sound like I'm letting myself off the hook, right? And just saying, like, you should just have the better attitude. It's not, I'm not trying to do that, okay? I hope you believe me. <laughs> The truth is, though, is that as we come to worship, either on Sunday morning or in every moment of our lives, whatever we do and we say, Lord, this is for you, if there are strings attached that are connected somewhere else, either for our allegiance or our dependence, we've broken this commandment. So yeah, we should look at the commandments and first say, all right, look at verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. My inclination is to say, no, I have no other gods. I'm good. The truth is, is that we have way too many gods, don't we? This isn't the first time we've talked about idolatry. We talked about it extensively in the book of Judges. It was their continual problem of the nation Israel, and it is continually our problem as well. 
want to think about why God is so strict on this. And something that is helpful for us is to think about this idea of covenant. Covenant is a promise. It's like a contract, right? It is a, a guarantee of a relationship between two parties. And the example that Israel would be familiar with would be something called a suzerain covenant. In which case, a greater king who perhaps has liberated a lesser king from an attacking enemy. They've come in and swooped in and saved them and taken care of them. This greater king then would write up terms of covenant for the continued protection of the lesser kingdom. Makes sense, right? Here's how things are going to go. You give me X amount of crops and X amount of soldiers, and I will take care of you, or you can take care of my land, or whatever it might be. There's the suzerain and the vassal. The suzerain is the stronger one, the one that is doing the saving work. And the vassal is the one in need of salvation, in need of something from somebody greater than themselves. And so the suzerain covenant comes into play as we understand what God is, how God is communicating to the nation Israel. Israel is now understanding, okay, we are the vassal here. We are not, this is not a, a give and, and take kind of relationship like anything else we've known. It's very different. God doesn't need anything from us, does he? When it comes to our end of the, of the covenant and we look at these 10 laws, we're not seeing like, okay, God, God really needs all these things from us. We offer sacrifices of worship and we offer sacrifices of obedience, right? We worship through obedience, but not because God is saying, hey, this, is, this could work out really well for us because you've got something I need. Though in the suzerain covenant, there is a sense where that greater king could look at the lesser kingdoms and say, I could build an empire out of this. God looks at us and says, I just want their hearts. Isn't that incredible? Even all the sacrifices, the tithes and offerings, and all those things that were to be given and rightly should be given, were all just pictures of it. God doesn't have any need of anything from us. And this first commandment gives us that basis of saying, I am the Lord your God. I want this relationship with you. Not simply a business partnership, not an agreement, but I want to be the Lord your God. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right there sets up every reason for obedience. First of all, God created everything, right? God is over everything. There is no one greater than him. And so obedience, worship, sacrifice, Whatever he asks for, he deserves. But he has, in his great grace, shown us that he is a saving God. And he reminds Israel, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so all these commandments that are going to come after that flow out of that truth. They don't flow out of whether we can do these commandments or not. They flow out of the fact that he has given us new life. For those of us in Christ now on the New Testament side, he's given us new birth in him. We've been made new in Christ. And unless we understand this first commandment, we can't understand anything else. What is it that these ten words do? They, they counter the inclinations of our hearts, first and foremost. They begin and end, Matir says, with interior aspects of obedience. So this is something we'll see in the weeks to come. But the way this is organized, we often look at these commandments and say, the first four have to do with God, and then the last six have to do with people. That's pretty well true, right? Five through ten and one through four are separated pretty clearly that way. But there's also a really cool pattern, I'll show you next week, of, of what God is actually doing 
um, in, in speaking these things in this particular order. But if you look at the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. This is a matter of the heart, right? What's the 10th commandment? Anybody know? What? You said it. Yeah. Don't covet. You shall not covet. And then a long list of things. That in your heart, don't long for things that are not yours. Isn't it interesting comparing these two commandments, the first and the last? First of all, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then he ends with, do not covet all these things. Your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's ox, blah, 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 all these kinds of things. He's dealing with the heart on the bookends of these commandments. And he's starting with what we have and commanding us to have what we have. And then in the end, he, he concludes by commanding us not to want what we don't have. Because coveting, in one sense, goes against this first commandment, doesn't it? It acts as if this God that is ours isn't enough. What about the fact that these are all in the negative? Doesn't that bother us a little bit? Wouldn't we like to hear what we're supposed to do better than what we're not supposed to do? Again, listen to the Irish theologian. Matir says, The negative form strives to meet the strong current of evil in the human heart. If our problem was really, truly wrapped up in just knowing explicitly what we are supposed to do, then these commandments might have looked different. But because of our sinful hearts, God has so decided to form these things largely in the negative, in the negative tone. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And he goes on from there just saying, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So many of these things, especially when you get to, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Not, 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 not. And every parenting book tells you don't parent like that, right? But what do we do? We do it anyway, right? We go around the house and we say, don't touch the stove, don't touch the sink, don't touch the this, don't touch the that. Why? Because the preface of that is to say that this is your house. You live here. And if you remember in the Garden of Eden, what did God give as a commandment? You shall... Nailed it. Right. You shall not eat... You can eat from all the trees in the garden, but you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Because in the day you eat of it, what? You shall surely die. Oh, that's so harsh. What a restriction. Right? Well, these commandments come with the same heart of saying, I don't want you to be bound by death. We're meant to come free of any other dependence or allegiance. We're meant to come free of any threat of harm. This is what God wants of us in worship, is to not be bound by other things. And when you, as a kid, touch the burning stove or stick your finger in the outlet, I hope none of you did that, that would be very dangerous, but all the things that we're told not to do, those things, in fact, call us to an, a separate allegiance, a separate dependence. My parents said not to touch the stove, but I'm really curious. And so curiosity becomes my God. And I want to obey that because it makes a better promise than what my parents have. And so it is with God as well. We're meant to come free of any other dependence or any other allegiance, but our problem is so often we come into his presence already inclined or prompted or maybe just leaning straight into worship of other gods. 
We make all these other gods for ourselves, our careers, our yard, our families even. Most of the things that we make idols out of, which idolatry is mostly the second commandment, so I'm trying to leave that for later, but most of the things that we worship as gods that are not God are often good things. Do you realize that? That's part of why it's so hard not to worship them, because they're good. I look to my spouse and I say, I want you to satisfy all the longings of my heart for friendship and camaraderie and teamwork and all these kinds of things. And I put so much on my wife that she's crushed by it and she has no hope of ever living up to that standard. Why? Because I'm looking to her for all the things that only God can give me. You shall have no other gods before me. What does that before me mean? It means in my presence. They're not talking about first place, second place, third place. He's saying, I'm your God. I'm here with you. And if you bring other gods into this relationship, it's not going to work. Everything needs to have its proper place. And yet we look to all these other things, even good things, and say, I need you to satisfy this longing. I will give you all my allegiance. I will put all my dependence on you. You can be my suzerain, and I'll be your vassal, and I'll just listen to whatever you say. God says, I'm the only one who can truly satisfy you. But we don't do that. This first commandment recognizes that we have many masters before us, many people and things in our lives daily that are vying for our servitude. And in some cases, rightfully so to a degree, right? If your boss at work is in charge of you because they're your boss, you shouldn't look at them and say, I have no master except for the Lord. You're not going to have a job very long, right? Especially because if you say that sentence, that's really weird, right? People, people kick out weird Christians all the time from work, and, and maybe rightfully so in some places. But this first commandment recognizes that there are many authorities in our life, right? There are many places that we go and we say, I have to obey the government, I have to obey my parents, I have to obey um, my boss, whoever that might be. We're called to go in and, and do those things, but not as though they are God, not as though they can satisfy what only God can satisfy by being our Lord. Now, the other part of this is the fact that most of those things are invisible to us, you know? Most of the things we don't realize, like, are really taking control of us and we have really become enslaved to. We've, we've basically let a lot of things like entertainment and food and sports and, and all sorts of those good things that we think, this is going to make me happy, this is going to give me relaxation, this is going to make me content. We've given those things our servitude without even realizing it because we just, we're consuming it. So we think we're in charge. We're the one that turns the TV on in the first place, right? <coughs> but the terrible irony of all of this is that in looking to those other things, we're rejecting the law of liberty, the law that comes to set us free, the, the law that comes not to set us free, but rather to, to protect that freedom, right? Again, God put Adam and Eve in the garden, and he put them there, and it was great. Everything was going to be awesome. It was supposed to be, Right? for a while, and then he says, hey, look, here's one thing. Don't eat from that tree. I'm putting this restriction in here so that we can preserve how good things are. And certainly, when you look at these commandments, there's nothing in here that at face value we would say, oh, yeah, well, you shall not murder. I mean, I'm not going to get rid of that one. I'm not, like, trying to kill people every day just for fun. I'm not trying to commit adultery all the time, or I don't want to steal, and I don't want to bear false witness. I, I get that some of these things sound practical, but the truth is, is that so much of the heart matter is something we don't see. We don't see that, like Jesus said, 
You've heard it said you shall not murder, but I tell you that if you've hated somebody in your heart, you've committed murder already. Because God looks at our hearts. He said, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that if you look with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. So all of these have a heart level that we need to deal with. And we find this bondage all over again because we're turning away from the law of liberty. We're turning away from Christ's life and turning to our own to find bondage. So in Acts chapter 7, verse 39, I love this phrase, Stephen, as he's preaching to the Sanhedrin, and he's going through the history of, of Israel, he says in verse 39, in their hearts, talking about Israel, they turned back to Egypt. And this is what our sin is, our, our desire to, to indulge in what the world has to offer us rather than bask in the glory of all God has for us is just like Israel saying, you know, Egypt wasn't so bad. Have you guys seen the Josh and the Big Wall from VeggieTales? I mean, this always comes to my mind when I think about them going back to Egypt. And Paul Grape sitting there going, you know, we ought to go back to Egypt. Everything was great. We had three square meals a day, snorkeling in the Nile. I mean, he makes up this whole, like, goofy, this was not at all what Egypt was to them. And, and then sure enough, the other character comes in and says, we were in slavery. What are you talking about? But when we look to these other things, we are acting as though slavery to sin is actually freedom and a vacation from all God has for us. And that's why when the world looks at the Ten Commandments, they say, oh my goodness, just a bunch of rules. That's all you Christians want. Rules, rules, rules. And you think that gives you purpose or meaning to your life. But for the person who's in Christ, they realize that the law is a law of liberty. I'm freed from my bondage to sin. I'm freed from that, that never-satisfied desire to consume more and more and more and to live self-centeredly as much as I can. Now, none of us think that we do this, do we? If anything, we're more of the sort of double suzerain covenant kind of people. I would like to serve God, and I would also like to serve my other God too. I'd like to put them together. And we think that makes us different from Israel, but this was Israel's problem all the time. They had no problem with worshiping Yahweh. They just didn't want Yahweh to be the only one. Jesus tells us in Luke 16, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in what? Money, right? You can't serve God in money. Money's not a bad thing, but when you make it your God then you've done a bad thing, right? You've done the wrong thing. But this is what we do. We say, I want to be a Christian. I also want to enjoy as much of the world that I'm allowed to. Where's the line and how close can I stand to it without actually toppling over and not becoming a Christian anymore? These are the youth group questions that you get all the time. Not to disparage youth group, but as, as people are growing and as they're learning what their freedoms in the world are like, and you're, you sit a bunch of teenagers in a room and you say, hey, you got to learn what your, your limitations are according to God's word. It's, there's conflicting messages, right? And so naturally the questions do become, okay, what can I do in a dating relationship that will still honor God but still be really fun for me? Or, or what kind of job? Or what kind of movies? Am I allowed to watch rated R movies? Can I read these kinds of books? You know, all those kinds of questions usually come from a context like youth group, but they don't ever really leave us, do they? They stick around because we want to serve two masters. And the reason we do that is because we don't see God as our only need. We don't see him as the one we ought to desire, that before him relationship. 
Because again, look at this commandment. He is, he is telling us this from the mountain, but again, he's come down to the mountain. He's telling us, you shall have no other gods before me. I've come near to you. I'm here with you in the cloud of fire, or in the cloud, in the fire, as I'm leading you through the wilderness. I'm near to you here in this book. This is the word of God delivered to you so that you might know him. I'm near to you by my spirit living inside of you, Christian. If you're redeemed and made new in him, God is not far from you. God says, I want to be your only God. And we say we need something else. So what kind of things may be calling for your allegiance today? What is it that might be offering you an alternative understanding of freedom? Or perhaps even just a backup plan? If this whole Christian thing doesn't work out, what do you have to fall back on? God's calling us to say, I don't need a backup plan. And he shows us in Christ, the only one who truly fulfilled this law of liberty perfectly. This only one who came with a singular heart of worship to the Father. In John 4, verse 22, Jesus tells the woman at the well, which this is where we'll return, by the way, and when we get back to John, Lord willing, he tells the woman at the well that God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And Christ indeed is the only one who fulfills the first commandment by having no other allegiance but to his heavenly Father, even to the point of the cross. Listen to Philippians 2, verses 4 through 11. Maybe you'll remember it from a couple years ago. This is one that we return to often, but not often enough. Paul writes to the Philippians, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. Jesus, who is himself God, the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate Deity who lived among us, who became flesh and dwelt among us, came and took this law and fulfilled it perfectly. And even in his exaltation, it says every tongue confessed that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you ever wonder how Jesus fulfills these commandments that are directly mentioning? I mean, we could say, okay, Jesus never murdered anybody. He never committed adultery. He never stole. Okay, those are, but what about this one? Like, because he's God, right? So, How can he have no other gods before himself? This is where the mystery of the Trinity deepens for us. The wonderful nature of God and that he is one God and yet three persons. I don't know how to explain that to you any better. But Jesus has come, he says in Matthew 5, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so even when Jesus walks on this earth and he reads from the Torah and he says, okay, you shall have no other gods before me. He's able to do that because he's able to worship God the Father. Isn't that incredible? He's the only one who was able to live a perfect life 
of singular allegiance to the Father, having no reason to ally with any other side, having no dependency or hope in anything else. And in John 3.35, where we ended two weeks ago, the author tells us the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Jesus is swept up in this worship that He fulfilled even (laughs) as He lived on earth. He obeyed the law even to the point of death. And so the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. And Jesus, the one who has perfect allegiance and dependence on God, is Father only. Even to the point of the cross. Where the righteousness that He was, that He could do no other, that righteousness is credited to His people. The wrath of God is exchanged at this moment. The anger of God against the fact that we haven't lived as with him as our only God and have in fact gone after death because that is the wages of sin. And God says this is truly the most wrong thing in the universe. No one should have to die because they didn't follow me or make me their only God. God is the author of life. He loves life. And so he hates death. And he hates what brings death. And so he poured out his hatred on Jesus. He treated him as if Jesus lived like you and I, having all sorts of other gods. And Jesus willingly went to the cross to pay for that for us. Jesus had no backup plans. He had no alternative view of freedom. He was simply allied to his Father. And this is what's been accredited to us. We are those who are brought into this relationship with God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. And we're brought into it as if somehow we were able to fulfill this whole law perfectly. Because Christ did. Because he is the one who makes this law not a law of sin and death, but a law of liberty to free us. No one's saved by the law. Okay, this is where things get... I've been confused all week as I've been thinking about this. But... (laughs) but the law reminds us of God's intention for us and of what God is making us into. And do you know that in Christ, the law is fulfilled and that if you are in Christ, that's accounted to you. Before you can even say, but Lord, I didn't do this. I didn't, I messed this up. The Lord says in Hebrews, I will remember their sins no more. It's as if we come up to God and we say, but Father, I've sinned and done these things. It's as if he says, what? What sin? What are you talking about? Not because he didn't know, not because we swept it under the rug and hidden it, but in a more glorious fashion, he chooses to forget. He treats us as though we've fulfilled this law perfectly because we are in Christ. And that happens before the law is given. Salvation and then law. Salvation and then life. You can look at this in one sense. You know, you have the Gospels where we have the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And then you have the epistles that come after. And the epistles aren't kind of like saying, all right, great, so you got this clean start. Here's how you keep it going. No, the epistles always point us back to the Gospel and always point us back to what Christ has done as our source of life, as our only true hope. And they, they show us how to live out this life. And so we can't come on a Sunday morning and say, I'm going to hear about how terrible I am at not making God my first and only God, and then I'm going to be told that Jesus did it on my behalf so that I don't have to worry about it when I go do it again. Paul says that if you live like that, you're not living the Christian life at all. You're rejecting this 
great salvation that he's accomplished for you. Instead, we live the life of the Spirit that shows us how to walk in a way that is pleasing to God. Not on our own, not by our own efforts, not by now I get a second chance, I'm going to do this right, but rather, the grace that saves preceded the law that demands. Grace and law belong together, for grace leads to law, and saving love leads to and excites grateful love. That is our response. Lord, I'm grateful. I love you. I want to do whatever you ask me to do because there's nothing that you can't ask me to do, right? Is there anything that God right now could ask you for that you would say, oh, you can't ask me for that. Sorry, God, that's not fair. He's given you his son. Is there any other God that you could find in this world who would give you something better? Is there any other option that says like, hey, here's a backup plan in case that Jesus thing doesn't work out? Saving love leads to and excites our grateful love. And we're meant to express that in obedience. Our obedience is never going to be perfect. Parents, you know this when your kids are trying to obey and they just can't do it, right? Oh my goodness, Nora sometimes drives me crazy. So I tell her, I want you to do this thing. And it's not even that she gets distracted or that she doesn't want to do it. She doesn't know, doesn't know how to do it. And, and I sit there and I go, oh, I told you clearly what to do. And then it's as if the Holy Spirit says, hey, listen let me just tell you for a second to calm down and realize what this is all about because this little parenting moment just becomes a reflection of the gospel in my own life. God doesn't get upset with us the way we sometimes get frustrated with our children. He sees us in Christ. He sees us now as what we will be in eternity. And so maybe a parenting tip, see your kid as the kid they're going to be when they grow up. I don't know. The sermon isn't about parenting. Whoever receives God's testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. When we look at the law and we see what it is and we see Christ as the fulfiller of it, we can say, yeah, how could I have any other God but him? This whole idea of before me again means the presence of God. And back to the suzerain covenant the suzerain and the vassal would make two copies of the covenant that they agreed to with all the terms on it. And one copy would go to the suzerain and one would go to the vassal. One would go to the saving party, one would go to the party that needs saved. We often think of the Ten Commandments coming down on two tablets, one through four on one and five through ten on the other. But Matir suggests that the two tablets both bore the full Ten Commandments on them. And where did those tablets go? Where did they end up? In the Ark of the Covenant, right? Well, they were broken and then there was another copy, but... They ended up going in the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God. See, in the suzerain covenant, one copy goes all the way over to the king who lives far away, and the other copy goes to the vassal who lives far away as well. They're not together. But God is the God who's come into our presence, come near to us in Christ, and bears the covenant, bears both sides. He's the guarantor of the covenant. This is why we can look at this law and say this is a law of liberty. This is an expression of God's love and not of some new bondage. So we, like Augustine, can pray, Father, command what you will, but give what you command. And the answer is always yes, because that's who Christ is for us. Our righteousness before God. So three things I want for you for application. First thing, something you need to know. You need to know that true freedom is found in singular worship and allegiance to God. True freedom is found in singular worship and allegiance to God. Secondly, something you need to be. 
Be eager to obey in Christ. Eager to obey. I know that's hard on a Sunday morning when your kids kept you up all night. And you're like, oh my goodness, I do not want to remember the Sabbath day right now. Right? Or when there's some other thing in the way. But remember, saving love leads to and excites grateful love. Be reminded of your salvation. Over and over throughout the whole Old Testament, God reminds his people, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I made you a nation. I made you my people. Be eager to obey in Christ. Remember what Ephesians tells us, that the works that we're called to do were prepared beforehand for us, for us to walk in them. You don't have to produce. You don't have to create. You don't have to say, all right, how how do I make something that's going to impress God about how he's my only God? Just walk in what he's created you to do. Walk into Monday tomorrow ready for him to be your only God and no other. And then lastly, what should you do? Do whatever it takes to find your delight in him rather than any other master. Do whatever it takes to find your delight in him rather than any other master. If that means you have to get rid of those masters, of those things that you know, are, are okay, you know, certain foods are okay, certain TV shows are okay, certain books are okay, but if you realize that so much of your time has been given to those good things that don't need to be there, get rid of them. I'm not saying become Amish. I'm just saying you might need to cut a couple things from your life that you don't really need in order to make more room to delight in him as your one true master. And I will tell you, I've put this phrase intentionally, whatever it takes. Also because last week I said in the last do, it was do whatever it takes to accomplish this thing. Here, whatever it takes because there's no greater thing. There's nothing else that we should say, oh, you know, God isn't worthy of this though. Remember what John the Baptist says in John 3.30, and we'll close with this. He says, This joy of mine is now complete. The joy of the friend of the bridegroom who delights and rejoices at hearing the bridegroom's voice. He says, This joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Ultimately, all the other gods that we put our allegiance and dependence on are all just to serve the God we make of ourselves. So let us decrease so that he might increase. Let us look at Christ as the one who is above all, who has satisfied the righteousness of the law that we could not satisfy and has brought us into a relationship with him so that we can have liberty and no other gods before him. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord, we thank you this morning. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that you have not given us a cheap salvation that should be responded to cheaply. Jesus told us to count the costs. Consider true discipleship not as something that we can just tack on to the rest of our lives, but to make you our one and only true God, both our Savior and our Lord. Not just the one who says, hey, I want to get you into heaven, then you can do whatever you want. Lord, you are worthy of our full obedience. Help us to delight in the law of your word, Lord. Help us indeed, as we prayed earlier, to be people of your word not for the sake of legalism, not because we can earn something from this law, but because this law shows us our great need for you. And it also shows us your great character and the great hope that we have that we will be restored and that we are being restored into the image that you have created us in, in your own. And we are in Christ so that that might be possible. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.